Well, let's turn our attention for a third and final time to the question of how we live in the fallen kingdoms of men, even while our true citizenship is in heaven. Our true citizenship is in the new Jerusalem. I want to discover today what the Bible actually has to say about the nations. What does the Bible teach about the fate of the nations? And I think there's a great deal of misunderstanding about the future of the nations. Eusebius, the great early church historian, lived through the Diocletian persecution when the Roman Empire destroyed church buildings, killed church leaders, and forced Christians on pain of death to sacrifice to the gods. Eusebius also witnessed the sudden conversion of Constantine to Christianity and the birth of the first great Christian empire. Eusebius was what we might call the first great Christian nationalist, though he did not use the term. In Christian nationalism, the kingdom of God comes to be identified with one particular nation or one particular empire. The Byzantine Empire preserved this Christian heritage in the East. Charlemagne was later crowned Holy Roman Emperor in the West. In Reformation Europe, both Protestants and Catholics set about to build Christian nations. From England, Christian nationalism colonized the New World, especially in colonial New England. The Puritans set about to build, quote, a Christian commonwealth, a city on a hill, a beacon of light to model what a true Christian kingdom at long last is supposed to look like. And centuries later, American presidents Kennedy, Reagan, and Obama still spoke of America as a city on a hill. But there was a systemic flaw at the root. Within a generation of founding their Christian commonwealth, Puritans began admitting unbelievers into churches through what was called the halfway covenant and gunning down Indians who'd never converted to Christianity. In the first great awakening, Jonathan Edwards, often considered the last of the great Puritans, recognized that the whole dream of a city on a hill was an ecclesiastical and political disaster. And Edwards preached the church must be gathered out of the world. God never promised to build a single Christian nation in the new covenant. King Jesus resurrected to call out his subjects from every tribe and tongue and nation not to build a single nation. And when you assume that Jesus is currently building a single Christian nation, then jihad becomes acceptable. Constantine, Charlemagne, the Crusaders, the Puritans were all guilty of forging a Christian empire on the anvil of war. People don't realize this, but in 1676, 56 years after the arrival of the Mayflower, the Sea Flower sailed away from Plymouth, carrying away a cargo of 180 Native Americans bound for slavery in the Caribbean. That's the danger of Christian nationalism. Well, right in a century after Eusebius, Augustine was not so enamored with Constantine. And even while he penned his masterpiece, The City of God, Germanic tribes came pouring into the empire over the Rhine and Danube frontiers. Roman civilization was crumbling around Augustine. And Christian nationalists were demoralized. If Constantine paved the way for the millennium as they thought, how could his empire collapse within one century? This makes no sense. Christians could not conceive of a Christian future without the Roman Empire. And Augustine had to respond. 
And his voice needs to be heard again and again and again. In the 10th century, Christians despaired over the collapse of Charlemagne's empire. There's no future without Charlemagne's empire, so they thought. In the 15th century, Christians despaired of the collapse of Byzantium and the Byzantine empire. In the 16th, Protestants could see no future for Christianity without a Protestant Germany or Switzerland. In the 19th, British Christians interpreted the collapse of the British Empire as the end of the world and the end of the Christian hope. And in the 20th century, I was taught in Christian schools that without America, Christianity has no future. And in the 21st century, I read Augustine. And I overcame my ingrained pessimism. Christians have made the same mistake for the last 2,000 years. When Jesus predicted the collapse of Jerusalem and the desolation of the temple, the apostles concluded, well, that must be the end of the world as we know it. It's all over. That was 2,000 years ago. Jerusalem did indeed collapse in 70 A.D., But Jesus predicted optimistically this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus' answer to eschatological despair, which is rampant in churches, is gospel optimism. And Augustine, friends, followed Jesus' lead. Augustine argued that there are two cities that exist all the way through human history. There is, first of all, what he calls the city of God, or the kingdom of heaven. And collectively, secondly, there are the cities of men. And by cities, he meant the kingdoms or the nations of mankind. Cities of men, says Augustine, rise and fall. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. But the city of God marches on over the wreck of nations and empires. And we as Christians live at the intersection between these two cities. Our true citizenship is in the city of God, even while we live out our days in a city of man. Now, like Eusebius, we may live in a city that is rising, an earthly kingdom that is becoming more powerful. Or like Augustine, we may live in a city that is collapsing, an earthly nation that is going the way of all nations. But Augustine says, in either case, our first loyalty is to the city of God. Only when our earthly loyalty is properly subordinated to our higher loyalty to God's kingdom, God's city, can we live as responsible citizens in the kingdoms below. When you have the right priority in mind, then you can fulfill the words of Jeremiah, seek the welfare of the city where you live. Because your loyalty is first to the kingdom of heaven. And when you're properly aligned then you know how to live as citizens below. And that leads us then to a crucial theological issue that I think is very often misunderstood. And it's this. God has a redemptive interest in the nations. Some prophecy experts who are always wrong but never in doubt see the destiny of the nations as a one-world government where all national distinctions are permanently obliterated and absorbed into one kingdom of Antichrist. And they preach a message of despair. And that message was widely preached in the last century. And that despair mingled with Christian nationalism in an election year with a global pandemic produce all kinds of dreadful prophetic application as well as many new conspiracy theories. But what I want to know is what does the Bible actually say about the nations? 
And to answer that question, what we have to do is turn to the final chapters of the Bible. The Revelation 21 and 22. But before you turn there, we've got to go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis 9. Genesis chapter 9. And let's develop this morning a biblical theology of the nations. When the Bible uses the term nations, as Joseph pointed out, I think it was just last week, we don't want to think just in terms of political boundaries, but in terms of ethnicities and languages and cultures. What does the Bible say about the nations? In Genesis 9, following the flood in which God destroyed the nations, God told Noah and his sons to go out and fill the earth again. And mercifully, God promised never again to destroy the entire earth as He had done. In the Noahic Covenant, God guaranteed perpetual seasons and a harvest right up until the end of the world. Consequently, Noah and his sons could leave the ark behind and go out and repopulate the earth. In Genesis 9 and verse 19, speaking of Noah's sons, says, from these, those three sons, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. That really is a critical text because it means all the nations come from Noah's sons, and therefore the Noahic covenant applies to all nations. Now we have seen local famines and floods all over the earth, but we have seen nothing remotely comparable to the Genesis flood. A loving God sends the nations regular seed times and harvest all over the globe. Now, Genesis 10 gives us a record of the nations which descended from Noah's sons. So verse 5 tells us, From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with its own language, by their clans, in their nations. And as you read on through chapter 10, you discover numerous familiar names. Egypt, Assyria, Nineveh, Philistines, Jebusites, and Canaanites. Now we have come to view these nations as the adversaries of Israel. Because in fact, they were. But the point of Genesis 10 is to tell us that God really is keenly interested in the descendants of Noah. He has no desire to bury them again in a watery grave, but to see them spread out and exercise dominion over all the earth. And Genesis 10 tells us that's actually happening. Now, of course, they initially failed to do so. And when they did, God confounded their languages at Babel. So look ahead to Genesis 11 and verse 7. This is really explicit. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Now, of course, God is not opposed to a single city of man. The new Jerusalem is coming. But the timing was all wrong. Man first had to subdue the whole earth, go out and create culture all over the planet. Further, a true ruler of the nations had yet to be born. The time for a single city has not yet come. Now, in Genesis 12, our attention is suddenly drawn away from the nations and riveted on a single individual and his barren wife. But you don't want to misread Genesis 12. God does indeed tell Abraham in verse 2, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. A single great nation will descend from Abraham. That is true. But don't stop there. 
Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, who are all those families? Those are the disobedient families trudging across the globe from Babel, speaking a bewildering array of new languages. God intends to bless them all. When God promised to bless every tribe and tongue and nation, He determined to bless all those tongues arising from the rebellion at Babel. The miracle of Pentecost is God's answer to the rebellion at Babel. Even in judgment, God promises future blessing. I'm never again going to strike down the whole earth with a flood. Now in Genesis 13, God promises Abraham a specific piece of real estate. Look at verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring, notice this, forever. The text and others like it, this text and others like it has caused no end to political controversy. This controversy runs right up to the present hour. Who owns the land of Israel? To whom does it belong? Notice here in verse 16 how God's focus actually expands well beyond the physical boundaries of Israel. Verse 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. God is going to bless a massive number of people through Abraham. And in Genesis 15 and verse 5, skip ahead, notice how God uses a second metaphor, not just dust, but in verse 5, chapter 15, and He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then He said to him, so shall your offspring be. It's very interesting how this convergence of promises continues. We find in Genesis is both promises of a land given to Israel and promises to bless all nations. Genesis 17 and verse 18, for instance, says this, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, and notice this, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. It belongs to Israel forever. But four verses earlier, notice this also. Verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Well, clearly, God has a redemptive interest, not just in one nation, but all the nations. Abraham, friends, was the father of the Jews. And Abraham was the father of Gentile nations. Abraham, if you recall, actually fathered six sons through Keturah, one through Hagar, and at least two others through concubines. 90% or more of Abraham's children were Gentiles. Nevertheless, as we read through the Old Testament, again, our primary attention is drawn to one son, Isaac, 
and to the nation that descended from Isaac, the Hebrew nation. And this single nation is immensely important because it will give us that future world ruler. But in the Old Testament, we never lose sight entirely of all the other nations. Yes, we funnel down to one nation, but don't lose sight of all the other nations. God, for instance, told Isaac in Genesis 26 and verse 4, in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God still pays attention to all the nations. But there is a real problem, and it's this. The nations do not improve after the flood. The nations are no more submissive to God today than they were before the flood. However, God cannot and God will not destroy the nations again with a universal flood. He has promised not to do that. So what is God to do? Well, let's turn briefly to three more Old Testament passages. And I have referenced all of these previously on more than one occasion, so I'm going to work rapidly through them. These are kind of favorite passages. I think I mentioned all three of these when I preached a sermon after the inauguration of President Biden called Who Rules the Nations? All right, so let's go quickly. Let's recall to our minds uh, what these passages say. What's the first one? Any guesses? Psalm 2. I heard it. Psalm 2. Psalm 2. This passage speaks of the nations whom God has intended to bless through Abraham, but also identifies a terrible reality. Verse 1, here's the reality. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's throw away God's moral restraints. That certainly does not sound like the Abrahamic covenant has come true. The nations rebel. But would you notice God's response in verses 4 through 6? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Notice God does not respond with a flood. God responds with a king. And who is that king? Verse 7, I will tell the decree. The Lord, Yahweh, said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Yahweh has a begotten son. And that son of Yahweh has the right to request a gift from Yahweh. What gift? Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now there really is a fascinating turn of phrase between verses 8 and 9. The Son will own the nations as His heritage. But first, they must be subdued. They don't go away, but they must be shattered and brought into submission to the king. Now turn to Daniel 7. Here again we find Yahweh, the Ancient of Days, and he sits on a flaming throne, turning on wheels of fire. His hair is white like pure wool. A liquid river of fire rolls out from his feet beneath his throne. Tens of thousands of bright angels are riveted to the scene. And Daniel says of Yahweh in verse 13, Daniel 7 verse 13, 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. Pause right there. What happened to Jesus at the ascension? The clouds took him up from planet earth. What happened on the other side of those clouds? Let's keep reading. With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Well, friends, that sounds like Psalm 2 where Yahweh makes a decree concerning His Son's right to rule the nations. And here He is called the Son of Man. And of course, you realize, I hope, that the term Son of Man was Jesus' favorite self-designation. Now, regardless of which position you take on prophecy, what is the future of the nations according to this passage? What's the future? All peoples, languages, and nations will serve the Son of Man forevermore. The cities of men will be finally subdued, shattered, and brought into the city of God forevermore and forevermore. And now turn to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. This passage addresses an important question concerning how Yahweh's Son will be installed as ruler of the nations. And here's where we can get a little bit confused. We are accustomed to thinking of kings being installed in a moment of time. There's an inauguration ceremony, he's crowned, okay, now he's the ruler. In our country, a transfer of power between two presidents comes down to a single day, a single hour, a single moment. But listen to what Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 says. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder... And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That sounds like the son of Yahweh to me. But listen to what happens with the birth of that child. Verse 7, of the increase. Key term there, key word. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You ever think of God as being zealous? If God is zealous to do something, what might he do? Well, read verse 7. Now, this passage speaks of an ongoing state of affairs. The child will be given the right to rule, but his rule will increase It will grow. It will expand. And certainly we recognize that all these passages speak of Jesus of Nazareth. I won't take the time to really defend that notion at the moment. But let's turn now to Matthew 24. And let's actually remind ourselves of what Jesus himself says about the nations. Matthew 24. Now, the Old Testament funnels down from the nations to a single nation to a single son, ultimately. You think of that sort of V shape of the Old Testament, from the nations to a single nation, ultimately down to a son. However, the first book of the New Testament reverses this funneling. Matthew begins with a single virgin-born son. And by the time you've reached the end, he's expanded outward to the nations again. Matthew, for instance, is the one who tells us of the Magi from the East celebrating Jesus' birth. 
It's Matthew who tells us of Jesus' promise that many from the east and the west would sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where? In the kingdom of heaven. And it's Matthew who records the delightful words of Jesus in verse 14 of Matthew 24. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Are you looking for the end of the world? Well, push the gospel to all the nations. And friends, if you think that God lost all interest in the nations when He set His affections on Israel, think again. If you think God abandoned the Abrahamic promises to bless all nations, well, think again. And if you think the end of all human history just obliterates all national distinctions, then turn forward one chapter and please think again. Jesus gives us in Matthew 25 his vision of a future judgment. And in verse 31, we read this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with them, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people, not nations, but people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. A separation happening within the context of every nation. So here again are all the nations... And they are standing before the throne at the end of human history. And a great separation occurs between believers and unbelievers in every nation. Jesus never promised to build one nation. Jesus promised to gather His kingdom citizens out of every nation. Edwards really got it right. Now would you just consider this? In Matthew 24 and verse 14, to Matthew 25, verse 31, we move from the first century to the end of human history. When Jesus spoke the words of Matthew 24, verse 14, He was three days from His crucifixion when even His closest followers would abandon Him. The city of God perished on a cross in Jerusalem. But in Matthew 25, 31, the Son of Man calls out His sheep from every nation under heaven. Something rather dramatic happens between the cross and the end of the world. Between Matthew 24 and verse 14 and Matthew 25 and verse 31. Something dramatic happens in between. Now remember Isaiah 9 and verse 6. Of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. Isaiah was talking about the time between Matthew 4, 24, 14 and Matthew 25, 31. And do you recall the words of Jesus Christ when he was put on trial? On his second trial before the Sanhedrin, Jesus spoke words that ultimately secured his condemnation. In the third trial, they reaffirmed the verdict of the second. The Romans found no fault in him, so Jesus was crucified because of the verdict of the second trial. And here is what Jesus said that got him crucified. Here's what he said. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. From now on, Jesus was claiming you will see Daniel 7 fulfilled. And they crucified him. And three days later, a resurrected king now claims all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Psalm 2 was fulfilled at the resurrection. God established His King on Mount Zion. The world witnessed a crucifixion. And He who sits in the heavens laughs 
God just pulled off an inauguration. And from now on, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And how exactly then does that happen? Well, turn to Matthew 28. How exactly do we see the increase, the expansion of the reign of the resurrected Son of Man? How exactly are we going to see Him increase His rule in every nation, as Daniel 7 predicted? The answer is right there in Matthew 28 and verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, and here's how long, to the end of the age. Friends, Jesus never called us to build a single Christian nation. Jesus called us to make disciples of all nations. Jesus never envisions a time when the nations would cease to exist. Rather, Jesus envisions His disciples discipling all the nations until the end of the age. And at the end of the age, those nations will bring their glory and their honor into that great city and hill, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven down to planet earth. And we will come to that vision if we turn to Revelation 21. But before you do that, I think I have time. Let's make one more stop. Little 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 rest stop. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. We're coming to 21, don't worry. And the clock is my friend today. Romans 4. You recall the promise that God made to Abraham concerning the land? Israel has fought ferociously for centuries for a piece of real estate to call her own. And evangelicals tend to be very supportive of Israel, almost instinctively, in spite of the fact that she embraces the spirit of Antichrist. Israel is a largely godless nation. And I, for one, do not largely support much of what happens in Israel. But I am interested in whatever became of God's promise to give Israel the land of Canaan forever. Would you look at the curious wording of Romans 4 and verse 13? For the promise to Abraham, Paul says, and his offspring, that he would be heir of the world. Heir of the world? Well, what about the land? I thought his offspring was going to inherit the land forever. And now Paul says he's heir of the world. Is Paul somehow contradicting the Abrahamic covenant? And the answer is not in the least. Paul actually takes a very narrow land promise and he expands it to the ends of the earth. Jesus told the Jews, look, the meek shall inherit the earth. That certainly would include the land of Israel, would it not? But in the end, God has a way of expanding enormously beyond our expectations. Personally, I am not overly concerned with the current geopolitical boundaries of Israel. I'm actually much more concerned that her citizens inherit the new world. The only way, friends, that God will fulfill a promise to give Israel land forever is not in a thousand-year millennium but in a new world. That's the only way you can inhabit a land forever is in the new creation. So let's not become so enamored with the evangelical fascination with Israel's land that we ignore, friends, the infinitely more important issue of the hearts and souls of her people. That's what really matters to God, the hearts and souls of the Jews. God wants Israel to inherit the new world together with all these Gentile nations which descended from Abraham. And now at long last, let's go to Revelation 21. 
There are some 19 references to the nations in Revelation. We will not look at all 19. We will look at three, the last three, beginning with 21, chapter 21. But let me just read two previous references. In Revelation 15 and verse 4, we read these delightful words. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. That's still future from the standpoint of Revelation 15. All nations will come and worship you. In Revelation 18 and verse 3, we read these depressing words. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, the beast. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Those are depressing words. And those passages, those two, explain why the Son of Man must make a separation of the sheep and the goats. Yes, all nations will come and worship, but in Revelation 18, all the nations are drunk with the wine of immorality. So where is this headed? Well, in Revelation 21 and verse 24, we read of the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven and it comes down to unite with planet earth the new earth like a shining city on a hill and revelation 21 and verse 24 says this by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. And go forward one chapter, Revelation 22 and verse 1. This is the final reference of the nations in the Bible. And listen to the unmistakable echoes of Eden. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the midst of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with, it, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Those are the last three references to the nations. The Bible's last two chapters speak, friends, of the glorious destiny of the nations. Healing speaks of restoration and cleansing, not obliteration. Over the last century, so much of the prophetic emphasis, it seems to me, was really put in the wrong place. So much attention was given to a future one world government and the obliteration of all nations and the amalgamation of all nations into one rebellious babble. And I do understand where that sentiment comes from. But I don't really think that's the crescendo the biblical symphony of nations strikes. The King of kings and Lord of lords is in the business of healing and restoring the nations through his eternal gospel. Now chapter 21 speaks of the nations bringing their glory and their honor into the new Jerusalem, into the city of God. And what does that mean? Well, glory can have a variety of meanings. Used of God, it often refers to His presence, His overwhelming presence. But it also speaks to something's uniqueness. Of course, God's presence is unique. But the glory of the giraffe is His towering height, He's unique. The glory of the cheetah is his unmatched speed. The glory of a world record holder is that she has not been surpassed by any other individual. The glory of Mount Everest is its staggering height. The glory of a thing is what makes it unique, 
unusual, different, special. Now, would you consider, friends, how marvelous the city of God, the new Jerusalem, shining like a city in the hill, is going to be when it adorns the new creation? When God has found a way to redeem the glories, the uniquenesses of all the nations and bring all that into the city, God will bring into His redeemed city the celebrated achievements of human cultures, the art, the music, the science of the nations, the tapestries, the literature, the crafts, hopefully the cuisine, Indian food, right, Brother Joseph? the architecture, the beauty of the redeemed nations, the artifacts of human dominion exercising in all the remote corners of the earth to every tribe and tongue and nation. God has found a way to go out and repossess the glories, the uniquenesses, the beauties of the nations and let their kings and their people bring all that glory into the city. Let the redeemed glories and honors of the nation just come marching in. And let's just celebrate in the future the redeemed fruits of human culture. Friends, the Bible begins in a garden. And it ends not just in a city, but in a multicultural, multi-ethnic city, which still somehow echoes the Edenic narrative. It's a beautiful, beautiful image that we are confronted with here at the end of the Bible. And friends, when you understand what the Bible truly says about God's redemptive interest in the nations, doesn't that help us really live as better citizens in the kingdom of men? Yes, our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. But should we not go out and live as citizens below and seek to go into all of our vocations and see people redeemed to populate that great new kingdom, that city in the hill. There is a delightful passage in one of our ancient sources dating to the early 2nd century, which in my estimation just beautifully captures the essence of the Christian's role in the world. It comes from the Epistle to Diognetus. And I had Mary Margaret print it out and put it in your bulletin. I've, 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 I've long just, I've loved this passage, ever since graduate school when I first discovered it. And let's just read this together. We will let this be the concluding application. How then should we live? We are citizens in the kingdom of heaven. How do we live? in cities below. This is written by an individual whom we do not know, addressed to a person whom we do not know. But it reads beautifully. For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own nor employ a peculiar form of speech Lord, lead a life which is marked by singularity. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of light. Let me pause right there. We dress like people around us. We speak the same language. We eat the same food. We go to the same restaurants, Right? We live in American culture. We have people here from other cultures. When you go back to your cultures, you live differently than we live here. That's all perfectly well and good. That's what he's saying here. But he continues, speaking of the striking method of life, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. 
They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. Isn't that a delightful description of a model Christian citizen? And I love how this concludes. To sum up all in one word, what the soul is in the body, that are Christians in the world. The soul is dispersed through all the members of the body. And Christians are scattered through all the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body, yet is not of the body. And Christians dwell in the world, yet are not of the world. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the assurance that we have from your word. That you, through the agency of your son, the ruler whom you have established, will in fact redeem redeem brothers and sisters for the Lord Jesus Christ out of every tribe and tongue and nations. We thank you, Lord, that you have not judged us again with another flood. We thank you, Lord, that you have responded to Babel with your spirit, the spirit of Pentecost, And the Spirit who has equipped men and women to go all over the globe translating Your Word, Your precious words for every tribe and tongue and nation. And we pray, Lord, that gospel efforts that are sent out by our church would be fruitful today. We pray, Lord, that You would give strength and courage and energy to our missionaries as they serve You. We pray for our own nation, Lord, that You would help Christians, equip Christians to be like the soul and the body, to go into every city and to be shining lights for Christ and pointing people to the new Jerusalem to come. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.